Hello friends, welcome back to the show. Today my guest is John Jacobs. John is a queen breeder from Rogue River, Oregon, USA. He has a business called Old Soul Apries and starting in 1997 with a degree in biology, John's goal has been to produce productive, hardy, pest and disease tolerant bees that are also a pleasure to work with. Hope you enjoy this episode. John Jacobs, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, before I started recording, John, we were talking about how you think Australia should handle its Varroa incursion. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, just based on history, you know, what we experience here in the United States and pretty much every continent that the mite has been introduced to, um, at the end of the day, I think you just have to plan on it being there it's, and learn learn how to manage them. Um, yeah, it's not all ba- bad. I mean, I think in this country, if you ask old time most every old timer I've ever asked about, is it easier to make a living now with bees with the mites or before? And they all say it's easier to make a living now. I mean, it's harder to keep bees, but there is value in scarcity. So it it. it well, every, everybody will have to up their game as far as how, how they manage their bees and breed their bees. Yeah, I have heard that before. Some people have said that, you know, about half the people leave the industry once it takes hold and then for the people who remain, they, they can do a little bit better. It's an interesting perspective on it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to that conclusion? Well, just uh, watching what's happened since I started uh, pollinating almonds you know we we were getting around 50 or 60 dollars us in 2000 and it's climbed up to 200 a hive now uh, just because uh well some of it's because of over planting uh you know planted too many acres but also just beekeeping's way more challenging and a lot of people can't stomach the risk and uh, find easier things to do. Right. So what would be your advice in Australia at the moment? We we think we've got it contained, but we're not sure. What would be your advice moving forward if it's rediscovered? Have miticides on hand. Right. Yep. Before, before you have a problem. And, um, you know, the best way to manage them is constant monitoring. I mean, you don't have to monitor every hive, obviously, but, you know, a statistically significant sample, you know, the alcohol, learn how to do the alcohol wash. You guys probably already know that. But And, uh, you know, the best way to cope with mites is to never let them get bad because if they get real bad, you can clean the mites up to where they're hardly detectable, but they leave viruses behind. Uh, you know, the viruses are as challenging as the mites, but if you can prevent, you know, big flare-ups and just manage the mite population at like a 3% or lower throughout the season, they are, they, they are manageable. Yeah. Right. Um, now 
You've had an interesting history with a varroa mite. Um, in 1999, you were one of the first breeders to get the USDA Russian mite resistant stock. Um, how, did the, how did those bees compare to what the VSH lines are today? Um, that was so early in my career, but uh, I found them at that time to be uh, a bit swarmier and uh, not too friendly, to, to put it nicely. They, they, were, they were testier than what we were used to. Um, the VSH lines seem, they were bred from bees in the U.S. and they're, they're a little more adapted. Yeah, I, I think the Russian bees have gotten better from what I hear, but uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, so in terms of, did those first Russian stock, did, were they able to, uh, suppress the mites as much as the current VSH lines, or have, have, have things improved a lot since then? Um, it seems I would say that's a that's actually a tough question. Okay. Um, you know, to, uh, without data to really support it, I mean, I could give you anecdotally. Uh, I would say the VSH lines are are, are probably better than the first Russians, but uh, I I haven't got or ran any Russian colonies lately. We do run a lot of Caucasians, which have some similarities. Right. So can you tell us what it's like to be part of the, the Bee Informed Partnership? Uh, it, it's great. I mean, we we can do ourselves a lot of what, what they do for us, but we really like having a, a third party come in and help us vet our, our breeders. That's the main thing we do with them. And it's nice to have the, uh, the way they tabulate all the data for you. It's you know, highly searchable and really useful data we get. Yeah. For people who are not aware of the Bee Informed Partnership, can you tell us a little bit about what they do? Um, they do uh, mite and disease monitoring um, and their, their services can range. But they have all sorts of interesting programs. They have sentinel hives throughout the U.S. and they, they tabulate their observations by region all, you know, all over the country. So when you go to their website, you can really get a good feel for what's happening in the bee industry. Mm, yeah, very interesting program. Now, you've been working for 25 years on a line that you call Survivor Stock. Can you tell us a little bit about that line and, and why you call it your Survivor Stock? Uh, well, jokingly, they survived my early years as a beekeeper <laughs> right. and I, when I did not know how to manage mites at all. I mean, we did go through some years where we applied extremely heavy selection pressure on the bees, like where you might lose 80% to mites and then spread back from those survivors. Um, you know, we, since the early days, I've learned to manage the mites much better. But you know, when we do select our breeders, we uh, 
free mite treatment, we'll go out and survey top performers, and then we'll pull out the ones that have the lowest mite counts right. for our breeders. Yeah, and so in that time, have you been introducing new VSH stock, or is that simply you're just you're just breeding from the ones that are surviving and and not bringing in extra stock? Every four or five years, I usually bring in some some genetics. Um, we haven't done that in a while, uh, except for the Caucasians. That you know, we we fell absolutely in love with those bees. They're, they're they're great bees to work with. So, and uh, I kind of have an ongoing program with uh, Washington State University. They're the ones who imported the genetics from the Republic of Georgia, and so I I help them maintain those lines. Right. And how so long ago? How long ago was that? Uh, we got our first Caucasians, I want to say, six years ago, somewhere in there. Yep. And when did they import them? Uh, they re- imported them uh, to the bee lab at Washington State University in uh, northeastern Washington. But they came, the the semen was frozen and brought in from the Republic of Georgia. And And how long ago was that, John? That was probably two years prior to me getting them because they had to go through a huge quarantine process and uh it was i found it interesting all the hoops they had to jump through to bring those genetics in compared to there was that brief period where australian package bees were coming this way and it was so much easier to bring those in than it was just to bring drone semen in which is kind of surprising yeah, that is interesting. And so, what what are the characteristics of this particular line of Caucasian, and why are they favorable? Um, their temperament is amazing. Um, they're really good honey makers, um, and there's a fair demand for them, but not a lot of breeders focusing on them. Um, we like bees that gather a fair amount of propolis. That, that was one of the other reasons why I got got into them. Um, you know, as an industry, most breeders have selected away from bees that gather a lot of propolis, and I, I think that w- was quite possibly a mistake. You know, over the last hundred, hundred and fifty years. Why? Why do you say that? Well, propolis has a uh, a lot of great properties. It, it can be antiviral, antibacterial. It really helps the bees seal up the hive. I'm in areas where there's small hive beetle. It makes it easier for them to imprison the beetles. Um, you know, it's a trait that evolved in nature because it increased the fitness of the hive. That That's its ability to, to survive in the environment. You know, it, it, you know, a less managed situation. So my, my theory is that it, it's actually good for the bees, and uh, we, we love that trait. Yeah, fantastic. So you've introduced the Caucasians into your breeder lines, and in during that twenty-five years, is is the main thing that you're selecting for a varroa resistance, or are there other things that you're really interested in as, as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would definitely not recommend you know too narrow of a selection uh, scheme. Yeah, uh, we need bees that put beans on the table so to speak you know they they have to make uh good honey they have to be 
vigorous enough that you can make splits for selling. We sell a lot of bees, and uh, you know they have to be nice to work with so that people let us bring our bees to their properties and what have you. Yeah, right. And so with uh, the survival line, is it still necessary to treat that line? Yes, it is. And well, so what treatments are you using for your bees? Um, I think uh, that's one thing I would definitely tell Australian beekeepers is when it does come to managing mites, have a variety of, of things available. Um, we like oxalic acid, formic acid. Uh, we use some time all products. Those, those are our main ones. Okay, yeah. And so oxalic acid is a really interesting one. I think a lot of beekeepers in Australia are looking to get into that one. And uh, we're not sure if it's going to be passed and, 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 and become legal here in Australia at the moment, but it looks like it's going to be the best treatment when it does come. Well, um, some, uh, yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, before it was a certified use here, uh, a lot of beekeepers were buying what's known as wood bleach, which is oxalic acid, and uh, they just made sure their their top bars were very well bleached. All right, <laughs> that's interesting. So, um, let's talk a little bit about mating nukes. Can you tell us, uh, you use a, a very big mating nuke, you use a four-frame mating nuke. Can you tell us why you're not a fan of small mating nukes, why you use those big, strong mating nukes instead? Well, there's a lot of reasons, actually. Um, you know, even a marginal queen can totally lay out those tiny frames. It just makes it really hard to assess the brood pattern. But uh, uh, for us, we also like how they fold back into the operation real easily you know uh, and it's, it can be pretty much one box size one frame for everything a lot of our hives we run in three mediums with the six and five eighths inches frame smaller frames and three of those put put together is about equivalent to a, a double deep volumetrically but we get 33 more pieces 33 percent more pieces of brood to make nukes with Okay, right. So it's it's a it's a lot more uniform than using, say, a mini mating nuke. Do you think that it's more successful in mating queens than the smaller mating nukes? Hard to say. Um, you know, we basically plan on you know a seventy five percent take rate on cells that we put out. You know, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. Like you'll get a couple ninety ninety fives and. Uh, start to feel a little comfortable and then mother nature will come along and humble you with a 50% take. And if you average it over the year, it's probably about a 75% take rate. And I think it's pretty similar for the mini nukes too. Okay. That's interesting. So you also talk about when you're selling a queen, you wait until she develops a, a strong <clears throat> pheromone signature and something that's been laying for at least 21 days. Can you tell us why you find this so important? Your customers will love you when they have a high acceptance rate on your queens. Plus, it's more time to like bet them. You know, any, any marginal queens start to show by the time they're capping over their first round of brood. 
and then uh, by 21 days, it's real obvious which what's a good queen and what's not. Right. And so when you see, let's just say, the queens that come back mated, how many of those do you think, as a percentage, do you think you'd accept um, after 21 days and, and, and sort of disc- and, and, and say, no, we don't need that one? What would be your acceptance rate personally? Not what comes back mated, but what would be your personal acceptance rate? Usually, I would say 90%, but not always, you know. Um, some Sometimes we've had, like, poor weather, and the queens had spotty pattern, and, like, we, we'd call half. But that, that's become less and less common, you know. Oh, okay. Now, you offer a consulting service on queen breeding. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Um, well, I, I actually have not been doing much of that lately. Most of my consulting work has been around uh, pollinator habitat for utility-scale solar companies. That's okay. kind of taken up all, almost all my consulting work lately. Yeah, that's... It, it's really fun fun projects because uh these are like 30 30 year projects and if you can get them to plant uh forage for the bees around the uh, solar arrays they're they're like 80 100 acre installs sometimes more sometimes less but uh that it'll be in that land use for 30 years so you kind of create these little pollinator oasis type situations that's very interesting so you've been do, you've been working with power companies to 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 plan out these areas. Yeah, and and where we've gotten it done, and we put the bees out there, and they do amazing. I mean, it, it's noticeably different than our other locations. So it seems for some reason we've got our sweet spot with the, with the solar industry on these projects. That's really interesting. Right. So, is there anything else that you're currently working on, John, that you'd like to talk to us about? Oh, we've been uh, making uh, a, a lot of mead lately. I've been doing some recipe development for the last three or four years, and we're starting to win a few awards here and there. And we're thinking about maybe adding that as a component to our to our business here over the next year or two. That's really interesting. So, if people visit you now, can they get it? Um, well, I can't legally sell it, but we can sure sample some. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so, how did that all start? Where did where did you get the idea to do that? Um, it's a multifaceted uh, motivation. I mean, I, when I was in college, I worked at a brewery, so I've always kind of loved the brewing process. Yeah, you know, I was a bartender, not a brewer, but you know, I I helped in the brewery occasionally. But uh, we in the valley where most of our bees are, they used to grow a lot of pears and the, uh, industries been pulled. I mean, almost all the trees are gone now. There's only like 10% of the pear trees there was when I started beekeeping. And I kind of wanted to come up with a value added product for the last of the pear growers that we pollinate. And, uh, my idea was to, you know, incorporate local fruit into our meads. That kind of helps support support the rest of the, that industry, and plus, you know, honey is 
honey prices have gotten a little better, but it would be rough just to make a living from having to sell honey. So, you know, a value-added product made from honey is also very, very appealing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've read that mead might be the oldest alcoholic beverage. Not sure about it is, that. It is. Well, I'm pretty sure it's mankind's oldest recipe. It predates agriculture. You know, the, the first mead was probably an accident. And, uh, you know, a pot of honey got rained on or something, or they harvested some raw honey and it permitted. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It is, it's man's old, oldest recipe. The history behind me to, and it is very fascinating. You know, it's arisen, rose in many different cultures too. You know, there's some Asian cultures that had some ancient mead recipes, and all, all over the world, there's various forms of what we would recognize as mead. It's kind of interesting. That's very interesting. Well, hopefully, people will be able to come and visit you soon and and, and try some of your mead. Um, can you tell us where we can find you online and also whereabouts we can find you if people want to come and try some mead? Um, we are oldsoulbees.com online and uh, we have a Instagram also that has a lot of pictures about what, uh, that kind of sh- highlight what we do. And uh, we're in the Rogue Valley, Southern Oregon is where uh, our, our farm base is, but we, we run bees all over the state. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, John, for for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, and good luck with the mites. Um, It's not all bad if they do establish, and I would definitely count on them establishing. I don't think anyone's ever defeated them once once they've come ashore so to say that is true uh i've i've read that no one has managed to to eradicate the the mite once it's taken hold in established colonies so yeah it's not looking good but we'll see how we go thanks john okay well hope you enjoyed that episode having a chat with john very nice guy and how good is that that he's making some mead and he's going to be using the pear trees from one of his original abury sites if you want to follow that journey, you can at oldsoulbees.com. That's the website, which is Old Soul Apries. He's also on Facebook at Old Soul Apries. And I thought it was really interesting how he uses these large mating nukes with four frames to produce bees that are very well vetted, as he says. Well, thanks so much for tuning in today. If you want to get in touch with me, you can at nixonbees.com.au. Have a great day.